I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Rachel Bovard. And this is NatCon Squad, where common sense and common good meet. NatCon Squad is brought to you by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Be sure to subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we've got, as always, a very diverse array of topics we'll be addressing today. We'll kick it off with Emily, who will talk about the Biden administration's partnering with literal Hitler today, Vladimir Putin, at least in the words of the Biden administration's uh, friends. We'll talk about the end of the unipolar moment with Josh. Rachel will talk about what Republicans need to do to take on big tech. And lastly, I'll talk about the Biden administration's little notice, but I think vital cryptocurrency executive order that recently emerged. So with that, let's turn it over to Emily first. Yeah, I want to talk about a pretty instructive moment that happened over the weekend when Maria Bartiromo cited some sources who she'd been talking to over the weekend um, on her show, Sunday Morning Futures on Fox News, that was clipped by um, some folks on the left, some blue check journalists on Twitter, and ended up getting covered in a handful of um, news outlets. But what she said was completely true. Judging by the coverage and the reaction, you'd think she had said something incorrect, but she was citing sources who were telling the truth. Um, and, and what got Maria Bartiromo in trouble was that she said people she talked to over the weekend were concerned that the Biden administration saw uh, Vladimir Putin as a partner. And she specifically mentioned um, on climate change and on the Iran nuclear deal. And the internet exploded, right? This is a, this was something so heretical um, and crazy and propagandist for Putin that Maria Bartiromo got written up as an idiot by the rap, which didn't even mention she was specifically talking about climate change and the Iran nuclear deal. Um, that's actually true. If it sounds crazy, that's because it is. We are currently negotiating a revival of the Iran nuclear deal from 2015, and, and everyone else can weigh in more on this uh, from the policy perspective than I can. Um, but securing a compromise from Russia right now is, is crucial to reviving the Iran nuclear deal from 2015, which is a goal of the Biden administration. Thus, while we are literally aiding Ukraine in their war against Russia, which just invaded Ukraine, we are working to compromise with Russia on the Iran nuclear deal. And so this is creating a very bizarre situation where the Ukraine sanctions, the, the sanctions of Russia related to their invasion of Ukraine are were somewhat on the table um, as negotiating chips, uh, because of course they are, because we, they're literally at war uh, with the country that we're aiding right now. And on climate change, John Kerry has said that he hopes Vladimir Putin um, is is keeping as a priority. Um, and he, he said this in late February and got in some hot water for it. But the basic gist of what he said was that climate needs to be a priority basically, uh, even when war is waging, and if not especially when war is waging, because there are climate consequences of war. This is an actual thing that our, our special climate envoy said. And so in both cases, literally, and I mean that in a sort of dictionary definitional sense, we are treating Vladimir Putin and Russia, the Russian government, as a partner as we continue to sort of work to cut emissions and as the Biden administration seeks to, to revive the Iran nuclear deal, they're literally being like, they're literally partnering with Vladimir Putin. Nuclear uh, technology makes for very strange bedfellows, like lest we forget the lessons of the past, 
in a global world, you end up in really weird situations, like in, in a globalized society. And so we don't have to be naive and act as though this is new, unprecedented, um, or even without some strategic, some understandable strategic situations, right? Like if you're a climate believer, you need to get Russia and China on board. Um, otherwise, your entire goal is silly. Um, but I'll kick it over to the group just with the question, maybe a two-part question. One, how dumb is our media that they seem to have no idea this is happening um, and to treat anybody who raises the issue as a propagandist for Putin, even though it, it is quite like factually occurring. Um, and, and secondly, uh, if, if you have thoughts, I'll, I'll kick it over to you guys, if you have thoughts on the wisdom of treating Vladimir Putin as a partner, now that we've established it's a fact, um, if thoughts on the wisdom of sort of continuing to negotiate the Iran nuclear deal and the uh, the, the climate issue as well. Let me, let me just jump in on the, the media aspect of this first. Um, ben Rhodes, of course, former deputy national security advisor uh, for comms during the Obama administration, uh, famously or infamously, the creator of the Iran deal echo chamber for Iran deal 1.0, um, famously or infamously basically called members of the media idiots when it came to the fact that he was able to exploit that media, manipulate that media into helping the Obama administration ram through the non-treaty of that first Iran deal. So how dumb is the media? Very dumb. But on the other hand, I think they know exactly what's going on. The Biden administration has been negotiating this deal urgently with Russia's help with China's help as well. And it's interesting, if you go back and look at the headlines around the creation of the first deal, you had the Obama administration thanking Vladimir Putin for his help in facilitating that first so-called pact. Uh, in terms of the wisdom or the insanity of this, here you have the regime that has been targeted as the preeminent enemy regime now in the Putin regime being used to facilitate the nuclearization of the world's leading state sponsor of jihad, Iran, that deal, of course, will unleash Iranian oil to be sold on the world market. So that solves a problem, I guess, for Joe Biden in some respects. But of course, Iran is a strategic partner or close to a strategic partner of Russia in the first place. So if you're going to empower Iran, you're empowering Russia. If you're making Russia the chief facilitator of the negotiation, you're further empowering Russia. This speaks to not only the lack of strategic clarity uh, and the farce and the disingenuousness of the Biden administration's vitriol towards the, the Putin regime, but I also think it reflects more broadly our foreign policy establishment, which throughout the Middle East over the last two decades, you've had one agency funding Sunni fighters and another agency fighting Shia uh, funding or backing Shia fighters who are fighting each other at the same time. It's totally incomprehensible and it speaks to, once again, one of the failures of the liberal internationalist progressive worldview. Obviously, this redounds to everyone's interest, but the interest of the United States. Yeah, so I, I, I basically agree with Ben's take. So there are a few things going on here, right? Um, I, the next segment that I will host in just a few minutes here is going to be discussing whether or not the unipolar moment is over, whether or not the over of kind of unquestioned, unmitigated American supremacy on the world stage has come to an end and like the return of great power competition, all that. And we're about to talk about that, but I think if you accept that premise, then, and you, and you accept the premise that we're entering a new age of strategic great power competition, perhaps a new kind of Cold War footing against China, then I think a long-term play to try to not alienate Moscow, to try to slowly bring Russia back into 
a friendly sphere, not, necess not necessarily an American sphere, but at least to not be antagonistic, I think is prudent. But having said that, in the short term, and we've said this since day one on this program, I, I, you know, I, since the Russia-Ukraine contratemps have broken out, Russia is not a friendly actor. They consistently do oppose American interests on, on the geopolitical chessboard, whether it's Iran, whether it's Syria. And those two things, I think, are, are, are in a bit of tension with one another, obviously, but I think it's prudent to think about kind of short term and then compare that to long term. To Ben's point on kind of just the intellectual you know, inconsistency here. I mean, it's jarring. I mean, it's it's really kind of dumbfounding. I mean, for, for the for the listeners and the viewers who are not quite caught up to this, I assume that we have a very well-informed audience, obviously, but the U.S. obviously withdrew from the JCPOA under, under the Trump administration. So because of that, America cannot directly negotiate with the Iranians and the current negotiations in Vienna. So the Russians are literally kind of the intermediary. I mean, I think I, if I understand the situation correctly, based on what I've read, I think they're like literally effectively like translating from like English into like Farsi via Russian. Um, so like, while at the one hand, um, you know, the, the, the media, the cable news talking heads are kind of lighting up their blue and yellow flags for Ukraine and saying, we stand with Ukraine, Putin's the new Hitler of this World War III. We are literally trying to sell out the farm to the world's leading state sponsor of jihad through these Russian intermediaries, through Sergei Lavrov and his kind of modern, you know, foreign ministry equivalent. So it's really just... It's really dumbfounding, but as Ben says, and the, the examples I think a sound one of kind of funding both the Sunni and Shia conflicts over the past 25, 30 years, there is precedent for this, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what's been said, but I think what's interesting to me about this is that it highlights the disparity, I think, between how our politicians and our media talk about foreign policy, which is always under a moral valence, and how it's actually conducted, which is under self-interest. Right. And real politic and global power and great power politics demands an interest valence. But we never talk about that. We just talk about the morality of these choices. And and I think in reality, there's some blending of the two. Right. The United States stands for a certain you know virtues in the world and some of those things direct our foreign policy. But at the end of the day, like you're seeing this not only with Russia and the JCPOA, you know, people were fighting on one hand and allying with on the other, but you're also seeing it with the Saudis. You know, how many times have we done business with the Saudis? We've sold them arms. We've supported their wars. You know, we've bent over backwards for them. And yet right now, when Joe Biden's trying to do a deal with the Saudis while condemning Ukraine, or I'm sorry, you condemning Russia on moral grounds, you know, we're trying to ally ourselves with the Wahhabis, which are the cruelest and most backward regime in the world. Uh, and meanwhile, even after we've laid everything at their doorstep, they're still threatening to withhold, uh, you know, not, not pump the oil that we need and actually do a deal with China instead. So again, you know, it would be great if our discourse could just be honest about all of this, but it we, we never can. So I, but I do think that the disparity, pointing out that disparity is important between how we talk about foreign policy, which is always under a moral valence and the self-interest with which it's actually conducted. And our media, I think going back to Emily's point, are our media dumb? I mean, I think the answer is like an overwhelming yes constantly because they take the easy refrain and nobody, no, none of our foreign policy uh, sort of journalists at all take a, a curious look uh, at what's actually going on and report it through a lens of self-interest, which is what you'd think they would do, which I think they really do the country a disservice in this generally. Any final thoughts, Emily, before we transition? Not at all. Okay. Yeah, cool. I was I was remiss, Josh, in noting because we didn't really touch on the climate change part of this. I'll just say that Vladimir Putin would love to be a partner on climate change. He'd love the West to completely give up oil and for all of us to be dependent on Russia for that. So with that, I'll turn it over to the unipolar moment. Yeah, so sticking on the foreign policy theme before we kind of take it home to the domestic sphere here. So my, the, the column that I wrote last week was kind of just openly 
musing, I guess, openly kind of speculating that really kind of the era of what I refer to as the unipolar moment, the unipolar era, I, I, I think is effectively over. If it is not over now, it is clearly ending and it's only a matter of time before it formally ends. So let's kind of just define terms and then kind of just have a discussion because I'm, I'm open to the possibility that I'm wrong about this for the record. So, you know, basically, so after World War II, okay, after the defeat, obviously, of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan um, in 1945, um, America kind of emerges as kind of the grand defender of, you know, Western civilization, liberal democracy, whatever kind of phrases you want to use. Obviously, we see the building up of NATO, the United Nations, all these various kind of um, transatlantic, transcontinental institutions where the U.S. is kind of the unambiguous leader. But for four and a half decades, for 45 years, we still were in a Cold War footing where the Soviet Union possessed a massive nuclear arsenal and we were on kind of a mutually assured destruction footing. Obviously, there were kind of mini battlefields all throughout the world, proxy fights, you name them, from the Middle East conflicts to Southeast Asia and Vietnam, of course, to Afghanistan, Mujahideens, um, uh, Cuba, obviously. I mean, any number of kind of proxy fights. So, But following the fall of communism, following the, the fall of the Berlin Wall um, for the past roughly 30 years, really in kind of our lifetimes. I mean, I was born in 1989. I was born literally the year that the Berlin Wall fell down. So for effectively my entire lifetime, and after the fall of communism, we have lived in kind of an, a, a unipolar moment where America has really kind of been the only sole true superpower. And I don't think it's an accident, obviously, that for in my lifetime, that in the era of kind of the unipolar era of American supremacy, of American, American geopolitical dominance, we have seen kind of, uh, you know, the the emergence, or at least we saw the emergence, it seems to be declining a little bit, but we saw the emergence for years and years of this kind of neocon liberal internationalist cabal, where they kind of got into their head this fundamentally hubristic, egoistic notion that it is the duty of the unipolar supremacist power to forcibly export via, you know, armed uh, invasion if need be, our values. And that obviously resulted in kind of the various kind of Middle East wars of regime change, whether it was kind of the, the quintessentially kind of neoconservative wars um, in, in uh, Iraq uh, in particular, or whether it's kind of the more liberal internationalist, Samantha Power, human, humanitarian ground wars in Libya, which would probably be the prime example of that. But the upshot is, I think around the same time that we started to see the returns on those wars, and those returns were not good. They effect, effectively did not succeed, as we saw, you know, finally in very clear distilled unmistakable form last summer, of course, with the Afghanistan debacle. At the same time as that, we have seen like the rise of China. And China obviously is a recurring theme on this podcast. We talked about it almost every episode in some context for good reason, because they have emerged as unambiguously America's obviously major threat this century. It's one of the many reasons why I think the Russia-Ukraine thing is ultimately a bit of a distraction from the major threat here. But look at what China is doing, obviously. I mean, look at the Belt and Road Initiative. Look at what they're building in terms of massive infrastructure in, in all of Eurasia, deep into the heart of Europe, obviously in the Middle East. They signed a memora memorandum of understanding just last year with the Iranian regime, kind of oil for money. They have a military base in Djibouti in the Horn of Africa. They are, they are all over Syria, Lebanon, and the Levant. They are all over kind of Central and Eastern Europe. They're all over our own hemisphere, obviously. China is all over Cuba, Venezuela, Colombia, you name it. And I, I guess I look at that and I kind of look most recently at last year and to me kind of China is effectively walking in to effectively retake Hong Kong 25 years before the formal end of the 50 year kind of transfer of power. So in 1997, the UK transfers Hong Kong back to China, right? But it's kind of a 50 year kind of one country, two systems agreement. And then in 2047, in theory, of course, not that the Chinese Communist Party can, you know, uh, 
formally kind of abide by the paper that that deal was written on. But in theory, 2047 was when Hong Kong was to be kind of formally reabsorbed back into the People's Republic of China. The problem is that what we saw over the past year or two, um, really kind of last year with the national security law, the shutting down of Apple Daily and various other Hong Kong publications, the Chinese Communist Party effectively just has retaken Hong Kong. Hong Kong today is not the Hong Kong of two, three, four years ago. It makes me very sad as someone who has visited there who saw in kind of all its glory. And it seems to me that's really only, I, I tend to be kind of blackpilled on the Taiwan question. I think it's probably only a matter of time before Xi Jinping makes his move here. So my basic conclusion is that for all the above reasons, the end of kind of the era of unmitigated American geopolitical supremacy is fundamentally over. And I think the time is to kind of soberly kind of habituate ourselves to a new era of great power competition, to recognize that China is our rival, but to, but to, but to soberly realize that they are a power that is not going anywhere. And, the, and what we have to do is to try to tamp down their influence, but not necessarily try to get rid of it. That's not going to happen. And the final thing that I'll add before just kind of tossing up for a very open-ended discussion is if you accept that premise and you accept all that, then I think the final interesting piece of the puzzle, and I teased this on the last segment, is that in the long term, I think we should probably be open when the Russia-Ukraine war is finally over, maybe a few years down the line, to trying to maybe not alienate Russia, okay? Maybe Russia and China allying this two, these two massive countries, the second and third largest countries in the world, a huge swath of the Eurasian landmass, maybe that's not a good thing. And maybe it's actually prudent to try to soberly try to get Russia somewhat within our more sphere of influence, if at all possible. So that's a lot for me, but I'll just toss it out there. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the unipolar moment is not, is not over, honestly. I've been thinking a lot about this question. You know, if, if U.S. influence is waning, if Western hegemony is sort of coming to an end <laughs> in this new moment. And, you know, I... I think a lot of what you what you've laid out there is interesting, and I can't help think that to really assert ourselves in this moment, we need a lot of tools that we don't have anymore that we've just traded away. And I'm thinking of the theme that we always talk about, which is our economic entanglement with China, right? If you think about what we are able to do to Russia right now, the sanctions we're able to impose, the oligarchs we're able to kind of go after, how we're able to hamstring hamstring and sort of circumvent them economically. We could not do that to China right now. We couldn't. We'd, we'd be too, we would damage ourselves if if not more than we would damage uh, our, our adversary. And I think that's been the sort of legacy of the liberal internationalism, which assumed always that great power politics would never resume, right? That self-interest would never be the primary motivating factor of nations. We see this, that's the premise of literally every international organization. And we, we've seen it denied over and over again. I mean, look at how the World Trade Organization fared during COVID, right? When technically members are not supposed to just, you know, shut off their exports or hoard goods. And we saw, you know, dozens of countries do that. Um, that were members of the WTO. They did it in violation of the WTO because, again, in a crisis, in a war, in a conflict or whatever, it comes back to self-interest. So I do wonder, like, I think the U.S. can still assert itself. And I think, Josh, you're probably right that, like, to break the Russia-China alliance, we are going to have to sort of contort ourselves to, to, make, to make that work because I do think that that, that alliance is is global world order changing stuff. And so we do need to get out ahead of it. I just really worry that with our current leadership class and the decisions that we've made over the last 30 years, we don't have all our, we're not fighting with all our tools. And, and that's really distressing. 
I'll, I'll just quickly say, I, I too have been thinking a lot about this kind of question, but I've been trying to do it from the sort of 30,000 foot view that like nuclear history is less than some people's lifetimes. Um, it, it is an extremely new technology. It was probably the most consequential technological development in the history of humankind um, because of what it's obviously capable of. And I do think that nuclear power um, leads to the way at least that it's been negotiated so far it does lead to these um, the, these great powers, so to speak, right? So that whoever has the biggest nuclear arsenal, even if it's Vladimir Putin and his GDP is way lower than China's and America's, he has disproportionate power. And the same thing goes for North Korea. Why do we even talk about North Korea in the same breath as, as China? Um, it's because of their nuclear arsenal. And it's it's the same thing over and over again. And, and that is very provo provocative to other great powers with big militaries. Um, and so I do think to some extent in a nuclear world, all of this is unavoidable. Um, and America still holds so much power because of our nuclear arsenal. Um, and that that won't go away anytime soon. But I do think we are still suffering um, from the hangover of the Bush years, which produced the Obama years. You know, the French are think they're exceptional. You know, America thinks it's exceptional in the same way the French think the French are exceptional, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I don't think we've climbed out of that because it's difficult to um, when there's when the bad guys uh, make some we keep giving them ammunition with legitimate points about our sort of failures of leadership. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll toss to you, Ben. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I guess I'd say that I, I always hold the view that America holds the capability to be the dominant world power to pursue its self-interest and to do so relatively freely and openly, but not particularly when you're talking about an America whose elites don't even appear to have a desire to retain that independence or a dominant position. I see a ruling class that, and I've said this many times before, is engaged in a cold civil war against the American citizens who would love to retain that freedom and independence. Uh, and, and then also at the same time is openly allied and partnered with effectively communist China. It's aided, abetted, and enabled its rise for decades. The Chinese coronavirus itself did not serve as a catalyzing factor in terms of tr a true decoupling of our two systems. At the very same time, China recognizes that over the long run, there might be a real push to decouple. And so China is trying to build up its own separate system of alliances and partnerships so that it can decouple from us first. How could we possibly be a serious country and, and, and talk about being a dominant power when we can't produce basic medicines, we can't manufacture anything. All of our weapon systems have components from overseas. Obviously, you've seen 11% or whatever it is of oil tied to Russia, and we're going around hat in hand to Venezuela and Iran seeking out oil. I mean, all of these things point to an American elite that clearly does not care for us to live in any sort of unipolar world. And at the other hand, on, on the other hand, we see led by communist China, a block of anti-American countries that are pursuing their self-interest quite rationally. So when one side is a deathly dedicated to its cause and another side, well, I mean, our elites basically want to destroy the America that we know and love in effect, how could we possibly expect it to be anything other than a multipolar moment? Uh, it's going to be a disaster for us. And the question to our elites is, what do you think the world will be like the day after China is the dominant world power. Do you think that's going to work out well for you, your children, your grandchildren? But that question is never posed to them. 
No, it's definitely never posed, but we're a bit out of time in the segment. So let's try to bring it back home to the domestic sphere. So we'll kick it over to Rachel to talk about Rachel's favorite topic and the history mm-hmm. of topics. I, w- I didn't know if you were talking about Mitch McConnell or big tech, but I think it's going to be a big <laughs> fair tech. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I haven't actually talked about big tech uh, on this podcast in a little while. So I thought it was uh, appropriate to bring it up again, but I have a new piece out in the Federalist today looking at what Congress can actually do to get legitimate answers on how to sort of tackle the policy problems that big tech creates. And this is based on two things. One, uh, you know, users themselves seem to have very little influence over big tech. And that has to do with the fact that these companies are oligopolies in many cases, and they don't care about their users because they don't have to. But the second issue is that when Congress does engage, we've actually seen these companies step up um, and fix problems um, in in some ways. Um, And so when I was thinking about, you know, how to address this issue, I came back to this critique that I constantly hear from people who are like, you know, the government shouldn't do anything about tech. And they point to the hearings that Congress has and they say, look how dumb these members are. They don't even know how to ask smart questions. And, you know, okay, there's some legitimacy, I think, to that. The the learning curve here is big, especially for the Xers and the boomers that are serving in Congress. Uh, I think back to Orrin Hatch asking Mark Zuckerberg how he made money. And Zuckerberg was like, do you know what a digital ad is? And Orrin Hatch was like, no. Anyway, so what I came to, though, is that hearings themselves, and I, and, I, and I do this obviously through the paradigm of Republicans being able to take over at least one branch of the Congress, hearings themselves are not completely without merit. And what I looked at and where I framed this piece is looking at at actually the the role of the January 6th uh, Select Committee. And so obviously everybody is familiar with the standing committees of the House and the Senate, but Congress can also create select committees to address specific topics. And that's what you've done for January, or we've done for January 6th. We did it previously previously for Benghazi, all the way back to the Iran-Contra affair, which was actually a bicameral House and Senate Select Committee. And what's interesting to me about the January 6th precedent is that Regardless of the of how insane the committee has gone, they in going insane, they have proven just how powerful a select committee is. And they've laid down precedent that is just incredibly far reaching. This is the most powerful select committee that's ever existed, being able to submit records preservation requests to private phone companies to demand the text messages of their colleagues. Can you imagine if Republicans took that precedent and turned it on the big tech companies, what they'd be able to get? Um, So that's the frame by which I put forward this this essay, um, assuming also that to do this, Congress would have to establish they could make it a bicameral committee, uh, a select committee, but then they'd also give it resources. So you could bring in the experts, you could bring in former industry people, you could get around that idea that the members themselves had to be the ones that were constantly informed. You could have a case where a council, committee council, is doing a lot of the depositions and a lot of the hearing uh, investigations. And so you're getting around this idea that the learning curve has to be overcome. So what could they ask? Um, I have a list of topics I think that uh, the committee could focus on everything from, um, you know, how what their internal research looks like, what they know about what their product is doing to kids. Um, This goes back to the tobacco companies, you know, and how congressional investigators uncovered how they misled the consumers and their users for decades get detailed documents on big tech's relationship with China, Um, subpoena the fact-checking organizations, right? We know that these companies work in many cases, they set up and pay for these fact-checkers that they then use to like, you know, censor news they don't like. 
untangle that relationship. How many times are these companies working with the federal government on surveillance requests, all the way down to requiring that anyone who testifies before this committee, be it a person who works at an organization funded by big tech, reveal their funding, and also organizations like TikTok, reveal you know their relationship with their foreign sponsor. So it's it, I've designed this essay with this in mind, which is to gather as much information as possible to make smart, informed policy choices, because I've said this on, in many other venues, but this idea that somehow one Section 230 bill is going to save us from the big tech phenomenon is just deeply misguided. Uh, Section 230 is a critical part of this uh, solution, but it's not the only part. And I think Congress, if they're truly going to solve the big tech issue, it's a hugely comprehensive uh, take that they have to push forward. And, and I think a select committee doing this kind of work and asking this kind of questions could inform such an approach. So I throw it open to the group because I know I've said, and I've said on this podcast before that hearings are worthless. Um, but I think under this, under this framework, I think they could be more than worthless. They could be beneficial. So anyway, no, I throw- now is as good a time as any to appreciate Rachel's hypocrisy. Um, and to appreciate Rachel's yes. acknowledgement of her hypocrisy. Um, <laughs> just, a, just a classic DC actor. Um, Swamp. No, no, no. Yeah, like hearings do involve subpoenas and you just made a great point. I, subpoena the fact checkers. I mean, this is also, by the way, breach of contract and Josh can probably talk more about that in some cases when you're purporting to uh, provide consumers something that is neutral or you're purporting to provide consumers something that, let's say, checks facts and you are utterly failing at that in a million different ways um that's the kind of thing actually that gets people fired it's the kind of thing that uh that absolutely um exposes the failures of different organizations in ways that really hurts their market power because consumers realize that it's a charade um and and so yeah actually there is i think to rachel's point right the, the hearings are the perfect venue for political theater and they're often um, exploited to that extent. Um, and they're often sort of hollow and, and just for performative um, posturing and all that stuff. But if you're serious and you, you have specific questions to pin people down, um, actually, I think Facebook particularly been hurt um, by Zuckerberg's appearance at hearings. Um, and I think the same thing of Sheryl Sandberg, and you can talk about different tech executives that it's actually really hurt their business um, that they've had to testify. Um, Jack Dorsey, another really good example, um, because it, it does expose the specifics of their practices. Um, and when you have really good pinpointed questions from policy experts who know exactly what to ask are serious about holding um, some of these people's feet to the fire, you can get some good stuff. Um, and so there's a lot of substance when with hearings when they are done correctly. So I, I, I definitely agree with the premise here that there's no harm whatsoever in strategically using the subpoena power. It is in theory one of the most powerful tools that Congress has in its arsenal and there's no reason whatsoever why a problem of, the, of this magnitude should necessarily escape that. I guess I have a couple of thoughts though. One is one thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently, especially since I moved here to Miami, which has kind of become like a new kind of like tech, fintech kind of crypto hub. There's nothing necessarily intrinsic to the technology sphere that should, in theory, just alienate like half America, right? That should like alienate a ton of conservatives. Now, I think a lot of us do have like 
um, uh, you, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to say like Luddite instincts, but I mean, I think personally, like, I mean, I definitely think that like technology can be way too much and sometimes not a good thing, obviously, but there's nothing intrinsic necessarily about up and coming technology that should just dissuade a lot of people. So like, I mean, just to give like an example, literally a few days ago, I, I, I got like kind of like a cup of coffee here in Miami with this uh, young guy named um, Mike Shabbat, who is the CEO of a brand new kind of tech startup called Traba, T-R-A-B-A, you can Google it. Um, it's like a 14, 15 person, like very kind of promising up and coming tech company. It's part of like the, like the Peter Thiel kind of founders fund orbit. But there's a lot of that here in South Florida now. And there's really no reason, I think, why conservatives should be so kind of anathema to the big tech companies as far as kind of personnel and hiring decisions. Now, there obviously is obviously at a level of practice because the CEOs and kind of the oligarchs of these companies are inherently fundamental. But I'm, I'm flying like to Silicon Valley this week. I'm literally speaking to the Silicon Valley lawyers chapter of the Federal Society this week. So I'm going to the belly the beast. And I've been told that I'm going to get people to turn out. So it's not like conservatives there in the belly of the beast don't exist either, whether it's on the West Coast or down here in Florida. So I guess on the subpoena power question, I would be curious to know the extent to which they are overtly or even kind of more subjectively just totally discriminating against conservatives who try to work at these companies. That would just be like another avenue that I would kind of look to pursue because I've seen it in person. Like I've seen a lot of conservatives, like, like, like the proverbial tech bros, like these people do exist. Like there are conservatives in tech. So I'll ask kind of the, the dumb but skeptical question here, which is to what extent do you all think that Congress and particularly Republican members of Congress are actually serious about holding big tech's feet to the fire versus that they want to engage in political theater where, where they don't actually draw serious blood or effectuate significant changes? And the, the concern that I've always had is that I think that Washington views the big tech companies as so powerful and so pervasive that they basically are untouchable. Yes, a CEO may look bad during a hearing. Yes, there might be rhetoric that, that suggests that there's really going to be an assault on big tech. But I think, you know, I kind of would ask, where's the beef? And so my question is, how do you incentivize the kind of behavior that will actually lead to changes when it comes to big tech? Obviously, you know, there's a political incentive of holding yourself up as a member of Congress as I'm the David who's trying to slay the Goliath of big tech. Uh, but ultimately, from a substantive perspective, do, do we think that we can incentivize them to actually cause significant real reforms? Maybe it's an open question, but. I think it's, you know, just to close us out on, on that, like, I think it's how it would be used, right? It's the, I actually make this point in the piece that shaming is not acceptable anymore. I think there's a lot of Republicans that seem to think, oh, if I just point out their hypocrisy enough, like it'll shame them. No, 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 they're shameless, <laughs> right? Like they love the fact that they ban Donald Trump. They love the fact that they ban conservatives. Like they're filled with this moral righteousness when they do it. Um, so all of this has to be done under the guise of a, of a concerted policy response. This can't just be like, oh, we're going to point out how bad you are. Like, no, we're actually changing the law and we just need a little bit more like to figure out the system and how it works before we do it. That would be my take. Okay, so on that note, uh, we'll transition to my final topic, which is relevant to the whole big tech conversation. Um, little notice, or I think little discussed at least, on March 9th, the Biden administration released an executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets. What could possibly go wrong with the Biden administration pursuing digital assets? And in the preamble to this executive order, it gives a bit of a flavor for it. It reads in part, quote, we must take strong steps to reduce the risks that digital assets could pose to consumers, investors, and business protections, financial stability, and financial system integrity. 
Combating and preventing crime and illicit finance, however, the Biden administration would define illicit finance, could be, you know, funding wrong thinkers, for example. National security, the ability to exercise human rights, financial inclusion and equity. So there's an ESG woke component to this, which concludes with, in this preamble, and climate change and pollution, because the mining is, is letting off so many emissions of, of, uh, of Bitcoin and the like. So you can already see that there's a kind of wokeified ESG element to this executive order. But then when you get to the substance of it, I think there are two points worth making. The first is that this is about regulations at the end of the day. And, and it lays it out pretty clearly here. Uh, shortly after the preamble, it talks about how digital asset issuers, exchanges, and trading platforms and intermediaries whose activities may increase risk to financial stability should, as appropriate, be subject to and in compliance with regulatory and supervisory standards that govern traditional market infrastructures and financial firms. And then it goes on to talk about the fact that they may need to create a, a, an evolution to a regulatory approach that adequately addresses risk of digital financial assets. So there's the threat of regulation here. Uh, regulation, of course, for example, of cryptocurrencies that are competing currencies to the US dollar uh, and other national currencies globally. Then the administration lets the cat out of the bag about its interest in uh, another US dollar sort of uh, derivative, a digital currency, a digital dollar. And the Biden executive order says, quote, my administration places the highest urgency on research and development efforts into the potential design and deployment options of a United States CBDC, central bank digital currency. China, it should be noted, has a central bank digital currency. I believe they launched the first of any nation. And basically what that, that is a huge component of their social credit system. By having this digital currency, it allows them to surveil every transaction that anyone engages in in China. Obviously oversee the, the makeup and contents and uses of their bank accounts. Obviously create a, uh, a profile of all of their transactions and activities. It's a huge part of the surveillance state that China has employed. So the fact that we're talking about a competing CBDC, I think alone, should cause Americans serious caution here. And the executive order goes on to call for a slew of agencies to go about preparing the research and studies on the launch of a US CBDC. So I wanna raise a few things about this. The first is the timing of this executive order is kind of remarkable to me. Here you have inflation rates, the publicly stated inflation rates, which you know are lower than the actual rates of inflation because they're government numbers and they water them down in all sorts of different ways. But you have the dollar tanking, totally evaporating. At the same time, the administration is looking to regulate competing currencies that actually reveal the extent of the devaluation of the dollar. And of course, cryptocurrencies in part arose because nations do debauch their currencies. And so there ought to be alternatives to them. So that's number one. Number two, so they potentially threaten here with the regulations to kill competing currencies, but they can also hold it out as a threat to this booming marketplace of crypto and digital asset actors to say, you know, it'd be a real shame if we had to hyper-regulate your industry and to basically extort players. So that's another aspect of this. And then the last thing I go back to is the fact that this may well augur uh, a part of a social credit system with American characteristics to the extent we do have a CBDC. If you look at the evolution of the US dollar, it went from being on a strict gold standard to a much less stringent gold standard to going off gold convertibility in 1971 to a sinking dollar since. It would make sense that if you've crippled your currency, then the next thing would be to go from a declining paper dollar to then a digital dollar 
that you can further devalue at the tip of a hat, especially because the U.S. government is the world's greatest debtor. We have a, as I've argued before, a debt-based economy. It's a debt-based dollar. Someone I, I saw quoted as saying that a CBDC for America, it would, it would be a surveillance tool disguised as a payment mechanism. And, and I think that's right. So here you have a potentially in the offing, uh, the devaluation, the destruction of a dollar, and also the erosion of our privacy. And I think those two points are both wrapped up in this executive order. I wonder what you all make of this. Is this as big a story as I think it is? And isn't it interesting how underplayed it's been in, in recent days? So Tucker had another of my kind of new like Miami like tech crypto bro friends on a guy named Nick Carter. T Tucker had this guy Nick Carter on last week to talk about this. And Nick's basic take and, and, and Nick's like a big like Twitter personality he founded like the website Coinbase for the crypto listeners who've heard of it. I personally am still like a, a crypto ignoramus to be honest with you. I, I really need to kind of get up to speed quickly. I don't, I don't know if any of you guys personally invest. I mean, it's possible I totally just like missed my opportunity, but I, I feel like this thing is probably only going to over the long term go up from here. Anyway, um, if you believe uh, this guy, Nick Carter, and like all the other crypto people that I've met here and the people I talked to, this is this is what Joe Biden would call a big effing deal. Um, this is potentially like a massive, massive deal here. And it's not just kind of the crypto community that's talking about it. a lot of kind of my more like traditional kind of like Ron Paul aligned, like libertarian kind of gold bug friends, like the buy gold crowd, the people that kind of watch Fox News all day and stock up on gold. They are terrified of this too, for the exact same reason, obviously, because whether like you're into gold or whether you're into crypto, it's kind of the same kind of overarching philosophy, right? Is that you don't want the government to have like, a true monopoly on, on on the currency, that you want to have a hedge against inflation, and oh my god, I can't I can't possibly wonder why all of us would want to hedge against inflation. I mean, look at the freaking CPI numbers. We're facing the highest inflation since the, like the Jimmy Carter era. I mean, the early Reagan years at the at, at the latest before kind of Paul Volcker came in, obviously as the Fed chair, and kind of did um you know hike the interest rates to kind of quash inflation. So I, I, now is just like the total wrong time in my um only mildly informed opinion um, to kind of come out there and potentially kind of tamp down on alternative currencies that could potentially serve as a hedge against this. The China comparison is also apt. It is no, you know, uh, that is not a coincidence. It is definitely not a coincidence that the, that, the, that the Chinese Communist Party has been kind of the one laying the foundation for this digital currency path. And it only kind of accentuates all the stuff that you've written for me, Ben, uh, for me and for others about kind of uh, this war on groupthink. I mean, it's just so easy to see with the path to where we're going down, kind of this two-tiered society between the deplorables and the ruling class. And I think this plays very neatly into that idea, honestly. Yeah, it's interesting. I sort of watch crypto from afar. Um, when I was working for Rand Paul, I owned crypto because I thought it was like a brand <laughs> that I needed to do. But it was it's like such it was so volatile. I was like, this seems like a lot of work. So I sold it. And then I probably missed, you know, all the money I could have made on it. <laughs> but, you know, I think what's interesting to me about crypto is that like it, it was sort of waiting for this moment. Like what I think is on, on less understood about the blockchain is that you can't actually delete data from it. Right. So if the government asserted itself over the blockchain like it it's it's a gold mine of the, of data and i think that's exactly what's trying to be done here um you know and i think that this is this is the question i have for the web3 people who are like web3 will save us crypto will save us is that like you have to keep it so decentralized number 1 for it to work and two you have to ingratiate it into sort of the mainstream of society and i know that there's efforts and i think miami is one of those efforts right to try and make crypto like a, a mainstream thing for the normies 
right? That it's, it's like paying with a credit card, right? You pay with crypto. I'm not actually sure that that would happen. You'd have to have almost total adoption, I think of that. And also again, with the web three argument, you know, people would have to buy their own servers, all these things that I'm not sure people are willing to do, but I think, I mean, I also agree with your premise, Ben. I mean, this is a huge sort of step over the Rubicon trying to control the decentralized economy that I think a lot of people are, are, is attracting a lot of people in this moment where every aspect of your digital life is being used against you in some way. The, the reason, so like the reason I personally have been hesitant to get on the, the Bitcoin bandwagon is because I think it's very quickly going to be centralized um, in a way that its backers don't fully uh, expect. And that's just sort of from the vantage point of somebody here in, in Washington, DC that like, I, I think Rachel Adrash just said this for, for it to work um, in, in a, basically for it to function as it should normatively, um, you can't have the, the, the creep of government intervention and government control, but you also cannot operate a currency in this world without government finding a way to control it. And that's why even the crypto industry right now has lobbyists here in Washington, DC. Um, and so you, you have it becoming a powerful special interest of itself. Uh, and so the benefits then, you just have to say, are they going to be, how do we weigh the benefits? And so I think the people who are really into crypto sort of like as, a, as their job or their hobby are smart and they're, they're doing something that you know, has, has virtue. Um, but I also wouldn't underestimate how quickly that could change um, based on actions uh, that the government can take. And so, yeah, this is an executive order. Um, what it could become fairly quickly is the, the next big question. And I just do not see how it survives much longer without coming under control. On that sunny note, let's go to our uh, parting chats. I think I was going to go back to something Josh was raising in the seg in my segment about sort of the premise behind technology, right? Being essentially values neutral, neutral in the sense that there's no reason conservatives should dislike technology. You know, we have a lot of people that are actually using it. And I think that that's a point well made, but I think that also I think adds an urgency to why I think a policy response to our current technology crisis is so vital. Because again, you know, to say conservatives are Luddites, like I think you were like, it's an overstatement. And I agree with that. We, we do hold on to, to tradition, right? And we always wanna make sure that what with whatever technical revolution is happening, a lot of that is celebrated for making justly, right? For making our lives easier, for making it easier to communicate all these different things. But at some point, the balance shifts and the technology starts to change the social contract and it starts to change how we all interact. And that's the point where the self-government steps in and says, no, 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 like we rule you, you don't rule us. Um, you know, under we incorporate you into our values and traditions, you know, versus the other way. But what we're, that is not happening right now. And, and, and that is a, for two reasons. One, you know, it's just the sheer dominance, I think, of these big tech platforms, but also their ideological capture. And so what I think many on the right just do not understand, they look at sort of a big tech response through the lens of, oh, big government is acting and that is bad. And it's like, no, this is now a ubiquitous technology through which we, en we encounter one another, through which we engage the society. The right needs to make sure that we are not being cut, that that technology is not being used to cut us off from what is now, you know, again, the public square, the financial sector, how uh, the market, all these ways in which technology informs that. So I constantly make this case to the right to see it through that lens. Um, but I think that, you know, you're right, Josh, to bring up the fact that conservatives do use tech, but for how long if we don't act? 
right? The technology sector, I think, is increasingly ideologically sort of censored in a, in a very serious way. And so, again, I just bring up a, the fact that conservatives really do need to be paying attention to this because it's a huge paradigm shift for how we govern this country that, that a lot of people are just still not paying attention to. Yeah, I mean, that I, I agree with, with all that for sure. Um, I, I guess what I was trying to say was like two things. One is, it seems to me there's like a slight cultural contrast between a lot of kind of like these small kind of tech bro startup culture, kind of like the broader Peter, Peter Thiel world is but one example, and like the big tech, you know, like the Zuckerberg level oligarchs. And I don't know exactly what is to blame for that. I mean, maybe Congress could find out more if they use the subpoena power to find out like the way that these companies are discriminating in terms of who they're hiring and whatnot. I mean, that would be a fun use of the subpoena power, in my personal opinion, but I guess we'll see what happens. But your broader point is really well taken here about kind of technology and capitalism. And this is kind of the entire point of kind of like the Irving Crystal two cheers for capitalism. And this is kind of the entire point of a political economy that sees capitalism as a deeply, deeply valuable instrumental means, but ultimately not an end unto itself. Because the prudent statesman, when it kind of, when it kind of gets down to it, when it gets down to brass tacks, when it gets down to the way to approach kind of political economy, and big tech is obviously a, a perfect example, is a paradigmatic example of this, is that it is important, prudent, and ultimately necessary for patriotic, kind of national interest-centric, a nation-state-oriented, you know, NatCon-minded, if you will, statesmen to put thumbs on the scale to channel these forces, be they kind of capitalistic forces or technological forces, towards the preservation of the nation-state and ultimately the common good and the human flourishing of the polity. And, you know, that is kind of like the basic philosophy, right? And obviously the policy means, we talk about this on, the, on this podcast a lot. I think Rachel has a lot of great ideas and I basically agree with all of them. But the premise there is, is totally right. I mean, like if you are letting just these technology companies do whatever the heck they want, um, you know, when I do these various big tech debates, I, like the recent one that I did uh, with Robbie Soab in Dallas, um, you know, the way that I always frame it is fundamentally not necessarily one of censorship or free speech. I think it's kind of small potatoes. The larger philosophical question here is ultimately one of lowercase r Republican self-governance, okay? Who is controlling the town square? Who is controlling the marketplace? Who is even dictating the rules for the town square in the marketplace? Are, are we outsourcing it through kind of this like ridiculous Section 230 interpretation? Are we outsourcing? all of that to the oligarchs, or are we going to reclaim sovereignty from the technocrats? So this is deep stuff, obviously. And, you know, I think any kind of statesman, whether you're Democrat, Republican, Lena Khan, Ted Cruz, whatever, if you care about the, the nation state and the common good, the polity, you have to be thinking hard about this. Uh, and I'll just say also um, this this question of who's governing the town, governing the town square, um, not to get too galaxy brain, but when we have these technologies, social media in particular, even Zoom, which we're recording on right now, which was uh, mostly used in like classrooms and corporations before the pandemic, um, these are technologies that make it so much easier for the consolidated power brokers to control the town square in Kansas, right? You know, what's the matter with Kansas? Well, now we can fix it because we can uh, sort of beam ourselves in to the literal town square um, and, and control it from Manhattan in a way that we never could before. Um, and I think uh, for the, the Robbies of the world, and I feel bad uh, you know, constantly using uh, Robbie as the, the libertarian punching bag, but he's out there uh, making these arguments um, every day. So that's what I think is important is, is not just to see this in the, the myopic policy debate, but to, to understand that this is part of a dramatic shift 
in uh, human life and human behavior, and that our policy needs to keep up with it in a way that is healthy for human behavior. And that should inform the broader Republican and Democrat approaches to technology. Um, the environmentalists and the naturalists um, on the left should be allied with the, the religious folks on the right who believe fundamentally in, in human nature um, and uh, have intense concerns about the ways our technology governed by corporations is uh, impacting and trying to interfere and detach ourselves from our human nature, whether that's on trans issues, whether it's an antitrust conversation because of Facebook, whatever it is, um, we have to really bring this, this, this uh, 30,000 foot realistic um, understanding of what's happening in the sweep of history to the table. We cannot be so myopic as to think, you know, technology like the car and the airplane, that's old. No, it's not. It's brand new, um, actually, in the, the scope of human history. It's bringing us together in new ways, and it's pushing us to our limits, and we need to understand that. I think stepping back at the 30,000 foot level, if you were a tyrant and you wanted to devise a way to have total control over people, uh, getting billions of people addicted to certain apps and using certain platforms just provides a whole new way to exert control over society. And it is interesting how you know, there's sort of a libertarian underpinning to the most of these technologies that were created and indeed a lot of the original founders and of course the entrepreneurial nature of these enterprises from their beginning definite definitionally and now how these enterprises grow big and they not only of course kill off competition but they're then used by leftist ideologues to try to control the marketplace of ideas globally and of course you know that power can potentially be exerted to uh, punish wrong thinkers um, you know, I, I think ultimately that users matter more than technology, but the technology also can have really detrimental impact on our users. And I just think about the fact, look at social media platforms, like the dopamine rush of a Twitter, for example, these sorts of apps literally rewire our minds. They discourage uh, long-term thinking, reflection, uh, prudence in our interactions. Obviously, they sort of remove us from real life interactions within our communities and atomize us. So, you know, the, the users matter more than the technology, but the technology also has substantial impact on the users. And, and I think that's worth recognizing. Last point I'll make, because I, I was remiss in doing so when Josh was talking about you know, the need to effectuate or, or the imperative perhaps over the long term to try to effectuate a reverse Sino-Soviet split today, Chinese-Russian split today. It's worth noting, first of all, that I do think that the Trump administration, that was the intent. And I think Russiagate killed any ability to try to foster relations in areas where our interests might overlap with Russia, even you know how whatever you think the wisdom of that, there might've been areas that we could have worked together and that would have redounded to our benefit instead of Russia now being the junior partner to a China senior partner. Uh, and also just a little history that I always think is kind of fascinating. Uh, Kissinger counseled Nixon in a February 1972 exchange, and I was doing some research on this, that, quote, for the next 15 years, we have to lean towards the Chinese against the Russians. We have to play this balance of power game totally unemotionally. Right now, we need the Chinese to correct the Russians and to discipline the Russians. But then he goes on to say, to caution, in a historical period, they, communist China, are more formidable than the Russians. And I think in 20 years, your successor, if he's as wise as you, sucking up to Nixon, 
will wind up leaning towards the Russians against the Chinese. And Nixon seemed to concur. In 1978, May 1978, Nixon wrote, we must cultivate China during the next few decades while it is still learning to develop its national strength and potential. Otherwise, we will one day be confronted with the most formidable enemy that has ever existed in the history of the world. And later on, he would go on to say that we may have created a Frankenstein's monster with respect to communist China. So it's interesting that history, and I think we're living through that history now 50 years on from the opening of relations, but we're dealing with the consequences of it today. Uh, on that note, for Josh, Emily, and Rachel, thanks for tuning in to NatCon Squad. I'm Ben Weingarten, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.